Thanks for listening to the Sunday Teaching Podcast from Salt and Light, a community based in Fort Worth, Texas, making disciples of Jesus together by seeking His kingdom in everyday life. Find out more at saltandlightfw.com. If you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we are taking this month, kind of as we transition into school, before kind of new DNA groups start, kind of we move out of summer neighborhood studies into old DNAs again, this kind of stuff. We're taking this month to just consider how the gospel, which is a word that's overused, so the gospel is simply the good news of Jesus's life and death and resurrection and reign. And this month, we're just considering how that gospel, how that good news isn't just a past event that benefits our future. Jesus didn't just die for our sins so that we can go to heaven. He did die for part of that. But there's more than that. So we're asking the question, how is it good news, not just for past and future, but, but for everyday life? And so a couple of weeks ago, the first Sunday of August, we defined the gospel as the, the life, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus. That, that is a past event that does benefit our future and impacts every moment of this life. And then last week, we started to see the gospel as something that applies to our everyday situations. And, and that maturity, Paul, and the, the gospel of the Ephesians in the Bible, Paul tells us that the way we grow up in Christ is to speak the truth in love. It's to, to rehearse the truths of the gospel and see, see Jesus as mattering to every question we ask and every sin we struggle with and every, every need that we have in this kind of stuff. And so tonight we're going to see how God's story, the story that he told throughout the whole Bible, the story he's telling through all of history, we're going to see how that story shows up in everyday life and why that matters. So I want to start with this. Feel free to, to answer out loud. I know everyone's going to have a thought in their mind, whether you want to say it out loud or not. But if someone were to put you on the spot and go, hey, be honest about this, not just the churchy answer, because Jesus is the churchy answer. But if you're really honest, what person or thing or goal or whatever it is, what is it that primary, primarily shapes and defines your life? Career. Someone else's opinion of you, perhaps. What else? What's something that shapes or defines your life? That's probably it. Career or somebody else's opinion of you. For most of us, that's like it. What are you say? Money. Yeah. Yeah. Which is tied to someone else's opinion of you sometimes. Achievements. Hmm? Yeah, money is tied to career. Yeah. Yeah. It's those two things combined. Yeah. Your toddler. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Lots of, so we got them all. That's it. Like nothing else is going to shape or define our lives. The desire to not waste your life. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of things that if you really boil down to go, what shapes me? What defines me? What, what do I wake up? One, one counselor asks a great question. Where does your mind wander when you don't have to be thinking about something specific? Like, that's a good question. It's telling. Say it again. Is your wife happy? That's okay. Like that's, that, that's permissible. We'll allow it <laughs> to a point. But, but here's the starting point for tonight. We've, we've said there's kind of a, a big claim for, for every week. The first one is that the gospel matters to all of life. Last week said that, that, that there's, there, there's something in us that, that drives us. This week, we're saying that every person on earth has some dominant story. You agree with that? Like all of us have some dominant story. And that story shapes our lives. We, lived, we live our life based on that story. 
And sometimes our story is shaped by circumstances, nature versus nurture, all that stuff plays a part. Experiences play a part, your personality and, and how God made you and this kind of stuff. But, but for many people, the most important person or thing or concept or goal that, that came to mind just now, that's, that's what kind of reorders the rest of your life. Is that fair? I have a friend who, who played in, in the NFL. One year, he was named MVP. And so he is literally named the most valuable player, the, the best football player in at least the United States. I say North America because some Canadian friends are like, well, we have the Canadian Football League. We're like, nobody knows what that is. So it doesn't matter. But, but so at least the best football player in the U.S. And then the next season, he got hurt and traded from the team where he was named most valuable player to be like the backup for his position. And then the following season, he got traded away. Now, now, what would that do for your identity? What would that do for the story that shapes your life? Would that shake you a little bit? You know what the hardest part, well, like what, what would you think would be the hardest part for him in that? Wasn't riches, wasn't fame, it wasn't status, it was purpose. Yeah, to hear him tell it, he said, I didn't know what it was like to not be needed. Anyone else resonate with that? He didn't know, not to that degree, obviously. I don't think any NFL MVPs are in the room, but he didn't, he didn't know what it, what it was like to not be needed. Ever since like junior high or high school years, he'd get pulled out to go talk to younger kids about the value of football. And then he was needed for his team. And then he came into some money from playing. And so people needed him to give. And, and this kind of, he, was, he didn't know what it was like to not be needed. So again, what's the most important thing, the most important person in, in your life? If you struggled with that question, let me ask it another way. What person or thing that if it was taken away would rock your life, maybe even change your identity? You don't have to answer that out loud, but, but, but I'm sure you agree. Every single person, follower of Jesus, not a follower of Jesus, everyone lives by some dominant story. And everyone, er, everyone on earth is shaped by a different dominant story. Anybody a twin in the room? Okay, so even apparently, I'm not, so, but apparently like even growing up in the exact same house, exact same situation, whatever, like your dominant story is at least nuanced differently than your twin siblings' dominant story. Like everyone has a dominant story and everyone's is a little bit different. And so you can see where like conflict arises and, and things like this. But, but here's the obvious question. What does the Bible tell us is our most dominant story, the dominant story of every human, whether you or they agree with it or not. What's the most dominant story? It's the story of God. It's the story of one creator who created all of us and the story of a, a, that same creator pursuing us when we're fallen and broken and imperfect and leading us to a fuller life now and then perfect redemption in eternity. And then if you're a follower of Jesus, that story is defined throughout the New Testament. So I'm going to read again the verses that Nicole read. This is the change in identity. This is the change in story. As followers of Jesus, you believe, whether you live like it or not, you believe you've been called into a better story. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now 
you have received mercy. What are, what are some identity statements in there? What are some terms of story shaping that you see? Kids or grownups, what do you see? What's God call us in those verses? Chosen. His possession. God's people. Yeah. Once you were not a people, now you're God's people. Man, you can just dwell on that for days. What a beautiful truth. You were once a people who had not received mercy. Now you're people who've received mercy. You're a priest. You know, know the Old Testament imagery of a, of a priest? This is Peter. He was, came out of a Jewish Hebrew background. He was primarily writing to, to folks who came out of Judaism into Christianity. What was the role of a priest in the Old Testament? It would have been very familiar to his readers, his hearers. A priest was a mediator between God and God's people. And here's what's interesting. Within Israel, there was a tribe of priests whose role was to mediate between God and God's people. They were, they were the Levites. And so the Levites would go and they would perform sacrifices and they would represent God through prayers and they would bring God's word to God's people. And that was the role of the Levites. What's really interesting is in Exodus 19, just before God gives his people the Ten Commandments, you've heard of those, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, those are, those are big things. Just before giving his people the Ten Commandments, God calls the whole nation of Israel, his holy nation and his kingdom of priests. So what was he saying? He said, within Israel, there's a tribe that's mediating between me and my people. But all of Israel are mediating between God and who? The world around them. That's right. All of us. And, and, and what Peter's doing is taking that same identity that God gave his old covenant people, Israel, and saying, hey, church, new covenant people, that's our role. We're, we're now mediators, a display and declaration community to the rest of the world that there's a better story. The Bible in other places calls it death to life. Here, Peter calls it from darkness into light. There was a moment where all of us were living by some other story. And then God said, hey, there's a better story. And he invited you into his story. Do you believe that? If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to humbly submit you're still pursuing some story that's going to let you down. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to submit that a lot of us end up living like those other stories, those lesser stories that we know objectively are going to let us down. We still live like that's the defining story of our life. We still live as if something, person, goal, idea, cause, whatever it is, shapes us more than God. And where is it that God calls us to live out that story? Beloved, Peter continues, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, some of us know these words better than others. They're, they're people living in a land that's not their own. You ever feel like the culture around us doesn't necessarily resonate with the same values that you read about in the scriptures? We're, we're sojourners, we're exiles, we're spiritual exiles living in a land that's not our own. I urge you in that truth to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul and to keep your conduct among the Gentiles, those, those who are not God's people, to keep that honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, not, they, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And, and, and I want to I invite you to consider that you might live one half of that charge 
better than the other half of that charge. And here's what I mean. We're asking, where does God call us to live out that identity, that priesthood, that holy nation is the display and declaration community? On one hand, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which is just another way of saying what the Bible says a lot. Like, try, try to live holy. Try, try to abstain from sin and this kind of stuff. What it doesn't say, though, is abstain from sinners. As if we ever could, because turns out we all are. But some of us abstain from the passions of the flesh. We, we, we live a holy life, but we do so far removed from the world around us. Is that true? Maybe not you, but maybe think of a follower of Jesus' friend who they do that. Of course, no one in the room would. We kind of pull ourselves out and we abstain not just from sin and temptation and this kind of stuff, but from the people that God has sent us to. And we live in our like Christian communities. And in my mind, it's always like a castle. So we pull into like our, our castle, we pull up the drawbridge, put a big cross on the drawbridge. Everybody knows this is Jesus's castle. As if like the sin germs don't affect us there. Is that fair? Being silly intentionally, but some of us trend that way. Others of us though, go into the world Peter says to live among the Gentiles, live among those who don't believe. But, but we don't just live among a non-believing world. We start to look like an unbelieving world. Does this make sense? And not just like, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, like, but, but like maybe it's just our goals and desires start to look like the rest of the world. Maybe the way we, we spend our time and our money and this kind of stuff starts to look like the rest of the world. And so we don't, we don't necessarily hide away and pursue holiness, but maybe instead we become so much like the world around us that our values and works and deeds and goals start to look no different. And to both sides, Peter, God through Peter would say, no. He says there's, there's a middle ground between those two extremes. Go, go and abstain from the passions of the flesh. Pursue a holy life. Don't hide away. Do so among the Gentiles. But let your good works be seen by them so that when Jesus returns, people can glorify God. When people see your good deeds, they can glorify God. Here, here's what Peter's saying. If one of the ways that God designed people to know him is by seeing your good works, because we're a holy nation and a people for God's possession, declaring, displaying the excellencies of God in the previous verses, why is it that people can't see our good works and glorify God if we're pulled out of the world? It's because we're pulled out of the world. They literally can't see them. We're hiding away in our Christian bubbles. Why is it that people can't see our good works and glorify God if we look like the rest of the world? Because we look no different from them. And so this is Peter's calling. Be, be God's priests. Be his holy people. Be sent into the world around you with a better story and let people into that story. Don't hide away. Don't settle for lesser stories. Live as if God's story is the one that matters most. And what is that story? It's worth camping out on this because in the same way that like we, we use the term gospel a lot and you hear discipleship and all these words a lot and people are like, yeah, I kind of guess I know what that means, but maybe not. In the same way, it's helpful sometimes to rehearse that same story. And it's the story that God tells throughout the whole Bible. It's the story that God tells over and over and over again 
in the Bible. And if you've never heard this, there's basically one story that God tells throughout the whole Bible. And it's in four acts or four movements, whatever you want to say. The story of God goes creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's new, new for anyone? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Here's, here's how each act of this story goes. Creation, God makes something good. Right? Think Genesis 1, right? Garden of Eden. We spent a lot of time talking about eternity earlier this year and how a lot of the images we get of eternity, we, we have to rely on, on Eden for because it's the only time that like God's perfect presence and everything worked together in unity and this kind of stuff. That's, that's the only time when everything was good. So creation, the act of the story of creation says something is made good. But that lasts for about a page and a half of your Bibles. And then the next act of the story comes in and that story is called fall. And that act of the story can be summarized by saying that good thing that God made becomes broken. And I don't think I have to convince you, like, there's a lot of that that we still feel. Because if God is telling the story throughout the entire Bible and throughout our lives, like, we feel elements of that same brokenness. And so Adam and Eve take probably not an apple we don't know what fruit it was, maybe a fig, maybe a fruit that God stopped producing after that, because why would he want to be reminded of that? But they took some fruit, ate it, and chose their way over God's, and creation was broken. Act one turned to act two, creation turned to fall. And then all they wanted, what was all that Adam and Eve wanted? Do you know if you read Genesis recently? They just wanted to be made right again. They'd been naked and unashamed and they were, they were now shamed and tried, tried to cover themselves. They wanted act four of the story. They wanted to be restored. And so what did they try to do? Do you remember? They, they clothed themselves, made some clothes for them to try to cover their shame. But here's the thing. When something's broken and when something's fallen and when something's sinful, we don't have the ability to make it right again. You feel that in any part of your life? We try though, don't we? We try and, and man, we yearn for things to be made. Like the longing for restoration is a good longing. We just don't have the power. Creation, fall, act four is restoration. But what had to happen in order for Adam and Eve to be restored to God in Genesis? God had to come in and redeem the brokenness. God had to come in and do what Adam and Eve couldn't. And so while Adam and Eve tried to cover their shame by, by weaving leaves together, God, we're told in Genesis 3, killed an animal and made cloaks out of the animal. And only then, because blood was shed, was Adam and Eve's shame covered. God had to intervene and redeem or buy back what was broken. Does that make sense? And... and and again, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, like maybe you know that, that story of Adam and Eve in the garden and they did something bad and then, then, then they got kicked out of the garden and, and then God said, I'm going to carry your line on. So we see that story in the first couple chapters of Genesis. You know where we see that same story pattern again, though? The very next chapter of Genesis. So if you go look at Genesis 4, God gave Adam and Eve two sons. Offspring is good. You know what's not good? 
When one brother decides to kill the other brother, that is not good. Creation, fall. And the story of Cain and Abel says that God said, Cain, I'm going to punish you for killing your brother. And Cain says, your punishment is too great for me. I can't bear it. What's that sound like? Sounds like Adam and Eve trying to do what they couldn't do. And so you know what God does? He gives Cain a mark. We don't know any more than that. It's just called the mark of Cain in the Bible. There's a few verses like that in the Bible. You're like, ah, I wish I knew what that was. God intervened and redeemed and did what Cain couldn't do. And so we see in Genesis chapter 4, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And you guys, the story plays out over and over and over again. Through the entire Old Testament, our Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, we see God invite his people into things and he puts kings over them. And sometimes those kings are his hands to redeem and restore the brokenness of Israel. And sometimes those kings, frankly, lead Israel right into creation and to fall. And they're longing for something to make it right. And then in the New Testament, see God call, Jesus call his disciples. Let's take Peter, for instance. Is it good to be a disciple of Jesus? Yes, yes, it is. You know, it's bad denying Jesus and betraying him. And yet Jesus goes and forgives Peter three times and then gives him a mission, says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. These are just a few examples. You follow, follow what we're doing here? Over and over and over and over again in the Bible tells this same story. And also the entire Bible tells this story one time for all. Something is good. Humans are good. Humans become broken. What's the ultimate redemption that God offers? This gospel that we're talking about this whole month, the life and death and resurrection and reign of Jesus is the only way that we're restored to God, both in this life and in the next. Does that make sense? I, I want to take us one step further into the story. And kiddos, let me have your ears for just a sec. I think God tells this story over and over and over again, all around us, in our own lives and in our own relationships and in nature, and even in the stories that we're drawn to love. So I'm curious to know, where have you seen this story play out? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Or kids, where have you seen maybe a movie or something in your life where there's something good that becomes bad, but by the end it becomes good again? Grownups and adults, where do you see this story play out? Do what? Romantic movies? Yeah, yeah, they're, that's great. They're dating, they're, they're the start. The guy always messes something up. It's always the guy, never the lady right? If they're not like making out while Taylor Swift's playing on the Brooklyn Bridge by the end of the movie, you're like, it's a bad movie. Critics love it. People hate it. But more often than not, watch next time you watch one of these movies, because we all do. There's generally something that intervenes, because try as they might, they can't often get back together on their own. Romantic comedies follow generally a similar story pattern to this. Where else do you see this? Star Wars, yes, yes. Not just romantic comedies, although that has. We're, we're, we just finished uh, Return of the Jedi last night. There's some weird romantic comedy piece flying on in there. Yeah, so yeah, it's the, there's, there's got to be an intervention, right, in order to kill off, if you will, the dark side. The Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. Harry Potter. Again, I want to submit most stories we love 
Outside of movies and stories, you see this in your life? Something good becomes broken, want it to be good again, only God can make that happen. Does anybody want it not to feel like it's the surface of the sun today outside? We can't control that. But guess what? If we have a little bit of hope in God's past promises, there'll be a day. It might be February, but there'll be a day when it dips down below triple digits. <laughs> what about relationships? Has anyone had a relationship that became broken and all you wanted was for it to be made right again, but try as you might, you couldn't? Again, the story is kind of interwoven in us. For musicians, like if, 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 a mu if a song ends with some sort of dissonance, like you know it, you feel it. You want it to be what? Resolved. You want brokenness. We want, we're wired to want brokenness to be reconciled. And, and, so, and so here's, here's why I'm, I'm trying to just marinate with us on this story for a little bit. We said last week, that the primary way that God designed us to become more mature, to grow up in him, is to speak the truth and love to each other. And here's the thing. If we know the story of God, and if we're looking for ways that this is playing out in the world around us, in our own hearts and minds, maybe in people that we're interacting with, then each of these acts carries with it a story, or excuse me, a question that helps us know what story we're living by. Here's what I mean. The act of creation asks us the question, where are you finding your identity? Let's just pause there for a sec. Don't look at the rest of the slide. Where are you finding your identity? What, what, talk to me. What does the Bible say our primary identity is? If we're believing the story of God, he's the best story. He writes the best story. Where, where is our identity found? We're sons. We're sons and daughters of God. Yeah. What else? We're in his image. We're created for his glory. If we're followers of Jesus, we're, we're brought into his family. We're adopted. That's our primary identity, right? If we're not believing that to be our true story, we can keep going on that. That's not all of them. But if that's what God says is the truest, best place to find our identity, but if we're not believing that, whether you're not a follower of Jesus or you say you're a follower of Jesus, but are still settling for a lesser story, where might some other places be that we find our identity? Anywhere? Abilities? Yeah, look at how good I can do or how much I can do. Where else do we find our identity? Peace. A sense of inner peace? Yeah, if we can just get to that, that point, then that's what matters most in life. What other people say about us, other people's opinions, yeah. Job titles? Again, kind of back to what are some of the primary stories that shape our lives? Like, that's a lot of where we find our identity, how successful we look. This makes sense. We all place our identity in something, some cause, some political party, sexuality and gender. There's, there's all sorts of places to find our primary identity if we're finding it outside of what God says is primarily true of. So, so as we hear people talk, it's not very likely that someone's going to come up and be like, hi, I'm Ben. I find my identity and what my boss thinks of me. That's rare. But if, but if I'm in community with you and all you hear is me talk about my boss and how much I let my boss down, and my boss doesn't like me, I'm just trying to do this. Like, what am I telling you? 
It's a lot of my identity that's found in that story rather than God's. The, the, the second act of the story, the, the act of fall, begs the question, what are you defining as the problem here? All right, so, so again, biblically, objectively, what does God say is the core problem with the world? Sin and the brokenness that like domino effects from sin. If you don't believe that's the primary problem with the world, what else might you define as being the problem with the world? That other political party. That, that other political party. Sure. What else? Yeah. Unkindness. People being mean. Right? She's not wrong. Most of the time, what we define as being wrong with the world is either you or me. Right? And if you're wrong with the world, then I get to shut you out, walk away from you. You're the problem. Hi. If I'm the problem, it's me. Then what am I going to do moving on to this third to solve it? If I'm what's wrong with the world, what, what do I do? Try to fix it. Try to change myself. Try to be better, smarter, prettier. If I could just, then this would be better. Or if you would just, right? What does God say, moving on to the third of the, what does God say is the only actual savior or redeemer? Him. And yet if we put our hope, if we put our trust in anything less than him, if I put my hope in myself to be the redeemer, if I put my hope in you to fix whatever's wrong with you, I mean, gosh, who hasn't been let down by that? And then the Restoration Act invites the question of where's your hope? And again, some of this starts to blend together. A lot of people put their hopes in political parties. A lot of people put their hopes in stock markets. A lot of people put their hope in, like, what is it that you, that you find or someone you know, quote unquote, might put their hope in if their hope's not in the promises of God, being who God is? The new year? Say it again. The government, yeah. Anything else? Self-help strategies, yeah. Back to the toddler thing. A lot of folks put their hope in like either their kids being really, really good and making me look good. And that lets us down. Or yeah, the next generation, they have to solve it. <laughs> so folks put their hope in their parents, spouses. Anyone ever been let down by your spouse? Don't answer that out loud. You get, you get why this matters? Because it's in all these like normal aspects of life. We have, the, we have the opportunity to say, I believe that God's story is, is a better place to find my identity. I believe there's something deeper going on than whatever the surface problem is. All the, like, it's this kind of thought on sin and brokenness that makes us allowed to say in the New Testament that our problem is not, our, our battle's not with flesh and blood, but with something far deeper than this. And so even human division has a deeper source. And we all know what it looks like to put our hope in functional saviors and to put our hope in something that's false and fading. These are, these are just examples. If the gospel is not a one-time event that benefits my future, and if the gospel really applies to every situation of our lives, then our answers to these questions 
have to draw us back to the story of God. That makes sense? Is that hard? Yeah, because it's not how we're wired. And there's so many competing stories. You're going to, right now, not even before you walk out of here, right now, there's other stories that are trying to shape your life. But this changes everything. This changes who we are and how we live as we try to follow Jesus. And so in our own minds and with our followers of Jesus community, and even with non-believing friends and neighbors, like we have to work past this politeness at times and work through the felt needs and, and think and process and speak out loud the goodness of him who called us out of darkness in the marvelous light, because that's what speaking the truth of love means. And it's wrestling with where's my identity and where's your brokenness and where am I putting my hope and where is he or she looking to save this and make it right. But bottom line, there is one truth that we learn to speak, and these are just different elements of it. And the answer is Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his reign matters and forms the truest story in all of this. Whatever else, this is the invitation from God tonight, but always, whatever else you're putting finances, hope, energy, time, money, priority into, if that's your functional redeemer, if you're putting your hope and trust in that thing, it's going to let you down. And you know that because it has. And Jesus says, I'm offering you, I'm inviting you into a better store. He says, I'm the only redeemer. Anything else is a lesser story. I'll give you a new identity. I'll help you define what the problem is. I'll become your greatest hope and I am your savior. That is living life in the story of God. That's this, this, this month as we just continue to process, that's part of learning to speak this gospel language. And yeah, it's hard and yeah, it's new and it won't just happen overnight, but it takes some practice. But that's good news. Is it good news? It's part of what we declare every time we take communion. So in a moment, we're going to get up and we're going to take bread. All the bread is always gluten-free. You take the bread and dip it into either the juice or the wine. Here's what I want us to do tonight, because this is a shared story, right? This is, we are God's people together. Yes, we're individuals, but we're God's people together. And so here's what I want to invite you to do, is get up, take the bread, dip it in the juice or the wine, and then come back to where you're sitting. And we're going to take this together. And we're going to declare this to be good news together, okay? So go ahead and get it. Come back and sit. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to, to sit and pray with us as we take this. But anyone who's a follower of Jesus who believes that this story is true, even if it's hard, is invited to the table. All right, as last folks sit down, here's, here's what we're holding in our minds is a tan tangible reminder that your primary identity was given to you, not by something you earned, but by Jesus's death and, re and resurrection. And then it's as we recall his death that we're reminded of the biggest problem, which is sin and the only solution, which is his sacrifice. And as we think on his resurrection, we're reminded of his greatest hope. Is that true? So here's what I want you to do. You don't have to raise your, raise your hand or anything like that, but if you're, if you're, in a place right now where you're like, I struggle with believing that story. Really just tell God that, that I settle for a lesser story. I have a hard time seeing you as my hope. We just tell him that.
And then here's the good news, y'all. Your ability to believe that story or not doesn't impact his love and care and pursuit of you. And if you're in a place where you're like, hey, this story is actually like, I happen to be by your grace in like a good spot with that. And I believe that you're my primary identity and I believe that you're my hope and I believe that you are my savior. We just tell him that. And here's the good news. If you believe that it's only by his grace and there'll be a moment when you're back in the other place. <laughs> but this is always true. So, we raise this as if we're making a toast together and we just say, Jesus, you're the best story. Take and eat. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Teaching Podcast from Salt and Light, a community based in Fort Worth, Texas, making disciples of Jesus together by seeking His kingdom in everyday life. Find out more at saltandlightfw.com.